0: Welcome to the podcast, Think Biblically, Conversations on Faith and Culture. I'm your host, Scott Ray, Dean of Faculty and Professor of Christian Ethics at Talbot School of Theology, Biola University.
1: And I'm your co-host, Sean McDowell, Professor of Christian Apologetics at Talbot School of Theology, Biola University.
0: We're here today with our guest, Dr. Christina Hitchcock, who is Professor of Theology at the University of Sioux Falls, PhD in Theology from the University of Aberdeen. Uh, and the author of a terrific new book on singleness that I want to talk about today. So, Christina, thank you so much for being with us, and particularly for uh, for writing the book that you did on this really timely subject.
2: Well, thank you. It's my pleasure to be here.
0: Well, so let me ask maybe the, maybe the 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 obvious question to start with. You're married, uh, yes, and you have you have kids.
2: I do. I have two kids.
0: Two kids. So. It seems like the, the 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 singleness ship has sailed, so to speak. <laughs> yes. Uh, and what but what made it, what motivated you to write this book on singleness and you know tell us a little bit about why that subject is so important sure. to you.
2: Well, I got married a little later, at least for kind of the evangelical subculture. It was later. I wasn't I got married when I was 30. And so I had about eight years as an adult, a single adult in the church from when I graduated from college until when I got married. And that was kind of a revelation for me in a lot of ways, both about the church, but also about myself and my own expectations and where those expectations had come from, that I just had this very strong expectation that of course I would get married. And of course I would get married fairly young. And of course I would have a bunch of kids. And, um, and then when that didn't happen, I wasn't, I didn't know what to make of that. I wasn't sure how to envision my life, especially, I think, as a Christian, and perhaps especially as a Christian woman, what did that look like without marriage, and how would I be a part of the church, and, and how would my life matter or be significant if I weren't married and I didn't have kids, if I wasn't a wife and a mom. And um, so I really started to, so it caused me to examine my own assumptions about my life, And where those assumptions had come from. And I really just discovered that I had kind of had, uh, I think, from the church and from my youth group and just from the people around me, had these expectations placed on me. And what really concerned me was that this created a vision for my future and there was no alternate vision. So when that vision didn't happen, I felt lost and felt even like there might be a spiritual crisis around the corner. You know, if God didn't do this thing that everybody in the church had said he was going to do, and if I didn't have this way of relating to the church and the world, then who was I and what was my purpose and how did I fit in? Um, So that was really something I wrestled through for those eight years and felt like it wasn't just this kind of personal issue for me, but why didn't the church have a vision of life for single people that was significant and valuable? because when I started reading the Bible, that's not at all what I got from the Bible. I got something very different from the Bible, that singleness was very valued and very uh, important to the church, both practically and theologically. And then also in the church, I just found that um, the church didn't quite know what to do with me as a single adult. Uh, And mostly the church kind of thought, well, we should marry her off as fast as we can, because that that will kind of help us all know what category she fits into. So both I felt uncomfortable with my singleness, and it seemed clear to me that the church felt uncomfortable with my singleness. And so that that's the thing that really spurred me on to, to think about this. And uh, even after I got married, to keep thinking about it and to keep um, feeling some concern about it, especially as a college professor. Of course, I have lots of young people in my classes who are hoping to get married or they're engaged or... For them worse, they're not getting engaged and they don't have any prospects. And, you know, this causes real spiritual questioning for them. And so I, even after I got married, I, I still always had in front of me those people who are wrestling with this question.
0: You, you know, Christine, you, have, you have, have a great way of stating things really succinctly, but also with a lot of punch to it. And one of those Thank examples you. in the book is when you say, American Christians adore marriage and are terrified of singleness. Uh, yeah. Can you un- unpack that a little bit further?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So I think, um, I mean, I think that American Christians, and I'm speaking mainly of kind of the evangelical c- culture mm-hmm. of Christians when I say that, um, that they have largely bought into um, the secular view of sexuality, you know, kind of the Hollywood view of sexuality, which says that. Um, our sexuality is the way in which we become fully human, and so it's in a romantic sexual relationship that we realize our full humanness. And you know, you can watch any Hollywood movie to to see this being displayed front and center. Um, I think the church has mostly bought into that idea, and so but has given it a spiritual gloss, uh, which is marriage. So the so Christians aren't saying you know just go have sex with whoever you want They're, but they they converted into being married and i think the the main reason we like our secular, secular counterparts adore marriage or or this place in which we have a sexual relationship is because we're we're kind of afraid that if we don't have that we're not really fully human we're not really fully adults um, and that we haven't come into our own and so marriage is that place where we believe we will become fully human and we will be recognized as fully human. And so, so we, um, so I think that's why we adore marriage. We want marriage. We, I'm interested even in, you know, it's not just in the church, even in secular America, you can still, uh, maybe it's going a little bit out of style, but I don't think much that marriage is still very much something, you know, on sitcoms or on movies that people want and they strive for and they hope for and they plan for. Uh, and the, and I think it's because we've wrapped up our identity in this idea that we have this sexual romantic partner. And so we're terrified of singleness, partly, I think, of course, because no one wants to be alone or lonely. But I think much more importantly, because we feel that being single is um, a reflection of our identity or a lack of identity, a reflection of me not being the person I'm supposed to be. And being single is kind of a signal to the whole world. Oh, look! I'm not the person I'm supposed to be. I'm less than what I'm supposed to be. Something's wrong with me um, because I haven't been able to find this sexual partner, this uh, this romantic other. So, uh, and then the whole the whole culture that we live in, both the secular culture and the church culture, is geared towards uh, marriage and towards couples. And so that only highlights even further and seems to affirm if you're not in one of those couples, that's kind of your problem. There's something wrong with you. You need to fix that.
1: Christine, I think it's really interesting that you're saying at the heart of the problem are certain ideas in our culture the church is borrowing from, but also bad theology about marriage and singleness. So what does the Bible teach on singleness? Like, What is a biblical theological approach we should take to understanding singleness?
2: Yeah, well, I mean, that, that, of course, is the heart of the question, I think. I mean, I think the Church has done a, a pretty good job so far of saying singleness has this kind of practical value, like single people have more time, they have more energy, blah, blah, blah. And there's a lot of truth to that, so I don't want to downplay that at all. What I'm really interested in, though, is talking about singleness having theological value. And we talk about marriage this way all the time, that marriage tells us something about who God is and what God is doing and that's what i mean by having theological value. And so we talk about how marriage is a picture of Christ in the church or something like that, which it absolutely is. So marriage has this theological value to it. It it points us to God and it tells us something about God. But <clears throat> excuse me, we're not good at thinking about singleness that way. And so what i want us to try and do is think about singleness as having theological value. And i think where we really see kind of the center of that is in 1 Corinthians 7 where Paul endorses Singleness, both for men and for women. And he says he wishes everyone could be like him. And he, and he gives the concession, of course, he says, if you need to get married, go ahead. That's totally fine. It's not a sin to get married at all. But that there's something um, theologically special and important about being single. And, um, and that, that that can be summed up in, I think, a couple of ways. Uh, first, singleness uh, points us towards the church as the As the only kind of true and eternal institution, as opposed to the biological family, it's not that the biological family doesn't matter or anything like that, but that in Jesus Christ, the church becomes our new family, our true family, our eternal family. So even our biological family, we come to be related to them more fully through Christ. So my children in the in the new order, are first and foremost my brother and sister in Christ, not my children. My husband is my brother in Christ, not my husband. So all relationships go through and in Christ in the church. So that's the first thing single single singleness as kind of single theology can help us with realizing that the church is our is our true family, our first family. Um, secondly, I think um, the singleness points us towards towards God's future. Singleness is a sign of God's future breaking into the present. Um, Because, you know, Jesus says that uh, in in Luke, I think it's Luke 22, he has a conversation with the Sadducees about marriage and singleness. And he says, uh, He says that in the resurrection, there will be neither giving nor taking uh, in marriage because we will all be um, made or revealed as children of the resurrection, children of God. And so um, he says, He seems to be saying that in the resurrection, in the new heavens and new earth, Marriage, as we know it now, at least, will not exist because marriage is just a foreshadowing of a much greater, deeper community that will exist in and through our relationship with Christ by the power of the resurrection. And so, singleness now points to that that order that's coming. You know, it it reminds me of Romans eight, which says that um, we now the world kind of suffers the birth pangs. Paul compares the coming age to the coming of the new age to uh, a woman in labor. And birth pangs, of course, are painful, but they signal that something is coming. And um, I think singleness now is like that. I mean, singleness, I think, is the harder way than marriage. I think it, there's a, there can be, it's, it's a difficult way to be in many ways. It's those, but it's those birth pangs that signal something new is coming, something better, something from the future is breaking into our, into our present. So uh single, singleness always reminds us of God's future as opposed to our present getting too too settled in our present. And then the last thing I think singleness uh, theology of singleness should uh remind us of is that our hope and our trust is in God. Uh and marriage and children are always they're wonderful. They're they're so wonderful that that we're always tempted to to put our hope and trust in those things. That here's a person who will love me no matter what. So they'll protect me, they'll help me, they'll love me they'll keep me happy, whatever. Here's my children. You know, they'll they'll go on, even if I die, they'll go on and they'll have children. So there's my hope for the future. You know, we have, you know, just pop songs about this sort of stuff, Um, how children are our future and all that silliness. Um, and, uh, and, And singleness reminds us that our hope is not in my husband or my wife or my children or some other person. My hope is in Jesus and that he's the one who will keep me safe. He's the one loves me, no matter what. He's the one who secures my future. He's the one who um, makes the future what it's supposed to be. He's the one I entrust my life to. Um and so I think in those those three things is where we can build a theology of singleness. And I really do see that stuff embedded in First Corinthians seven as well as some important surrounding texts, um, that singleness has this deep theological value, not just a practical value and that that value has to be understood in and through Christ, the Church, and in Christ's future resurrection.
0: That's, uh, thank you for that, Christina. That's really insightful framing of this. It strikes me as kind of ironic that if—I uh, think 1 Corinthians 7 also affirms that marriage is not eternal. No. Um, I like the way you put that, that singleness is, is, a, is an anticipation, a foretaste of the kingdom— uh, mm-hmm. It's ironic to me that we treat, in the church, we trend, tend to treat marriage as the end. Yes. Well, why, why do you think that's true, given what the Bible teaches theologically <laughs> about singleness?
2: Well, that's a great question. Um, I think there's probably more than a few reasons, but, um, <clears throat> excuse me, I think, uh, I mean, I think part of it is, well, I'll just I'll just go for the I'll just go for the jugular. Um, I think the one of the main reasons is because the American Evangelical Church has forgotten its eschatology. Quite honestly, um, I think that we um, give lip service only to the resurrection and to the return of Christ and to the creation of the new heavens and the new earth, but that that is not central to our understanding of Christ. It's not central to our understanding of the Church. Um, we that we um anticipate our future being in a spiritual realm um as spiritual beings only, and even then, so heaven is what I'm talking about, and so but even then we we think of heaven as a place where we'll be reunited with our loved ones, and we usually mean our spouse and our children, maybe our parents also. Um, but we don't have this vision of this renewed this wonderful, renewed earth that is full of resurrected people from all of God's times and places and that God is going to bring this new order into this old earth into these old people us and that he's he is um that that what we're doing right now is not is not the greatest thing the greatest thing is yet to come i mean paul says in 1st corinthians 15 that if if Christ is not raised, then our faith is futile. And, and he goes on to say, if Christ is not raised, then let's you know eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. You know, if, if this life is the best we've got, then we should do all those great things. And so when we forget the resurrection, when we forget what God is doing in the future, of course it makes sense. Get married, have sex, have a lot of kids. I mean, those are all great things uh, to do, and they're probably kind of the most Kind of full of natural human community that we can that we can get, so if this life is kind of the best we can hope for, then by all means do all that stuff and so when we kind of scooch the resurrection off to the periphery, we tend to focus on this world as if it's the thing itself instead of maybe a picture of the thing that is to come and so um, I mean I would lay m- the bulk of the blame at the American church's uh, neglect of of Christian eschatology. I think there's lots of other reasons. Uh, I think the the secular sexual ethic has deeply pervaded the American church, and so I think that's going to have a lot to do with it as well, that we find our identity in uh, a sexual relationship, and, and we kind of don't know how to find it without that. So I think that would be another reason.
1: Could you talk about that last point you made a little bit? It's like you were just scratching on the surface of it how the deeper— kind of sexual ethic in our culture you think has influenced the church? Expand on that a little bit, if you don't mind.
2: Yeah. So, I mean, I think, um, I talk about this in the, I think, the first chapter of the book, but that, um, so there's uh, a guy named Stanley Hauerwas, he's an ethicist, he used to teach at Duke. I think maybe he's a fellow at the University of Aberdeen now, but um, he wrote a wonderful essay called Sex in Public, How... Adventurous Christians Are Doing It, which is a great essay. I highly recommend everybody read it, um, where he identifies two basic um, uh, sexual ethics in the secular culture. One one is the realist and one of the romantics. And basically, realists say, look, people are just programmed to have sex. They're going to do it no matter what. So we should just make sex as safe as possible. So this is people who are like, you know, kids are going to have sex, so we should just make sure that they get a condom, that type of thing. Um, and then the romantics are people who say um, sex is all about how you feel and you have to be authentic with each other. So when you love someone, then you should have sex with them. So love is kind of the the authenticating feeling for sex. And so if you feel love, you know, you should go ahead and, and have sex. So what these two things have in common, the thing that ties them together, is that both emphasize uh, human autonomy. That it is up to kind of the individual to decide is this an appropriate time for me to have sex? And if so, how can I do that in the best possible way? And so sex becomes that thing that validates me as a free human being, and it makes me fully human. So I think that the church, the American church, has essentially bought into that line of thinking, that, um, that sex is, and both of those things, both the realist position and the romantic position. So you can easily read a lot of Christian books out there right now that kind of say, look, people are getting married way too late. The reason our young people are having sex before they get married is because we're telling them that they should go to college and they should go to graduate school and they should get a good job and they should wait until they're ready to get married. And so, you know, of course, nobody can control their libido for 15 years. So of course they're having sex before they get married. So there's this big push For Christian young people to get married quite young, like late teens, very early 20s. That's just the realist position with kind of a a marriage gloss. So it's not you should have sex whenever you feel like it, but it is still that, look, people are programmed to have sex. They can't not have sex. So we need to just get people married. I mean, so marriage is to Christians, Christian realists, kind of what a condom is to secular realist. We just have to make safe, you know, sex safe. Uh, so marriage is what does that. But then, of course, you've got Christians who are romantics also, and that love is the authenticating thing, um, and that it's only love that makes a valid marriage. Again, it's not sex, but it's marriage, because we're putting that marriage gloss on it. And this causes all sorts of problems with with our understanding of marriage, that marriage is that that completes us, you know you complete me and and if we don't feel love all the time, then there's something wrong with our marriage, and this leads to a lot of deep disappointment and frustration in marriage um, and kind of seeing marriage as this self fulfilling humanizing thing um, and so i so I think um uh, because we we have we have taken on this secular sexual ethic and imposed it onto our understanding of marriage that we both have a strong emphasis on marriage because we identify it as that thing that makes us fully human, that thing that makes us fully um, adult or grown up. Um, And yet at the same time, it always (laughs) fails to do the thing that we want it to do, you know, ultimately. So, So we feel deeply conflicted about it and very confused about it. Where we think this is the way we're this is the thing we're supposed to do. this is what we're made for, we're made for sex, we're made for marriage um and yet that emphasis doesn't allow us to i think read the scriptures in all their fullness or to see God's plan in all its you know kind of radical uh with all its radical ideas.
1: Christine, I think you're right. I've I've written and spoken in areas of marriage and sexuality, and it's amazing how often you hear voices, even within the church, saying yeah. people are going to do it anyways, and you can't be fulfilled yep. without sexuality. My question is always, where do you find this in scripture? Yeah, and yeah, you, that's
2: exactly right.
1: And you just don't find it there, as you're pointing out. Well, let, let me ask you this th- this question: What would it look like practically in a church setting for the church to value both marriage? And singleness, because it seems like it's obvious. Yeah. We have our marriage, you know. Weekend seminars, which are fine. We get suspicious of people who are single. I've had friends who are single for a long time, and everybody was always trying to set them up. Well-meaning, um, yeah. but yeah, undermining the value of singleness. So, what would it look like practically to really value this the way Scripture does?
2: Yeah, I think that's a great question. And you know, the church I belong to right now is really working hard on that, so I respect them for that. And I think it's a it's a it's a difficult question because. When you start really tackling it, you realize how many systems both in the church and the larger culture are set up to favor married people um, and you kind of don't even think about it if you're a married person <clears throat> but uh, if you're not married you it's pretty obvious so I mean I think the very first thing to do is just uh, we should have some good sermons on the theological value of singleness, not the practical value of it but the theological value of it and so we should hear singleness praised from the pulpit. Um, and encourage from the pulpit. Um, We should have single people. um, We should show that we're proud of our single people, Um, not ashamed of them. We don't think they're weird. We don't think there's anything wrong with them. Um, We are so thankful for them and that they are not just that we can give to them, but they're giving things to the church as a whole that married people can't give. They're giving us pictures of God and of uh, who God is and what God's doing that married people don't give to the church so there's this integral theological part of the church <laughs> and i think we should be saying that from the pulpit publicly using scripture to to bear that out um i think also it wouldn't hurt to um think about i mean i honestly i think the the catholic church can be helpful in this the history of the catholic church and that the catholic church has always had a place for singleness and we could debate you know the reasons for that and 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 whether we like that or not but as a result, the Catholic Church throughout the centuries has tried to create systems to make singleness not only possible, but fulfilling and, you know, a good life. You know, we can't ask people to be single and then give them no structures to support that. That's just not fair. And and it's not possible. So, like, for example, um, recently my husband started his own business, and I have a job and he has a job and he quit his job to start his own business. And, um, you know, I have, we get our benefits through my job and that sort of thing. And so, you know, off we go. We just go off on this venture. And I have a friend who's single who would kind of like to quit her job and start something on her own. But it's so difficult for her because she doesn't have a husband who, ha- who she can get her benefits through and who's kind of a backup salary. And so she's just, she feels much more caught. Um, and so we started talking, what would it be like for a church? to have a fund, kind of a financial fund, to help support single people in kind of life transitions because they don't have that normal spouse backup person to do that for them. So what would that look like to have kind of a fund set up for single people to support them in economic transitions in their life? Whatever that might look like, whether they want to start their own business or whether they want to adopt a child or whether they, you know, whatever it might be, I don't know. Um, so start to try and think creatively about what are the, what are the difficulties single people face and how can we as a church step in and make that different for them, whether it's economically or socially or, um, or any other way. Um, I think one of the biggest problems, uh, fears of being single, I know it was for me, was just the idea of being alone all the time. And so, mm-hmm. What does it what does it look like to integrate um, single people into our community as a church? You know, whether it's to live with other people, maybe live with families or single people living in community together, or I don't know. I mean, I think we need to be creative about this, and I don't think it's a one size fits all sort of thing. But I think we really need to think creatively and biblically about what is it that the Bible describes as a good and flourishing life, and what are the obstacles to that in our current church culture for single people? And how do we go about rectifying those things? Um, and in the book, I named some sources that are working hard to, to be creative and to think creatively about those things. So um, I think we need to take that seriously. So I, I don't know that I have a, a I don't have a one size fits all and I don't necessarily have a, have a single thing, but I do think churches need to, to take that call to action Pretty seriously, and start thinking about it in creative and biblical ways. Christine, use church history to guide to guide them through that.
0: Yeah, no, that you may you may not feel like you have all the answers on that, but I, I think Sean and I would both say that's a pretty good start. Um, <laughs> and especially, I think some of the specifics that you've mentioned. One last question for you. Yeah. Uh, and it seems to me that there's that there's a connection between how our churches would value singleness and our ability to connect to people who are wrestling with same-sex attraction, yeah. same-sex orientation. Can you in your, you connect the dots on that a bit in your book? Can, can you just briefly yeah. tell us about why that matters?
2: Yeah, well, I mean, I think the church, <clears throat> by and large, has bought into this idea, this secular idea, that, uh, you know, having a sexual partner is the thing that makes us fully human. And and I think whether we say that out loud or not, that message is coming through loud and clear to everybody. And so if someone is same-sex attracted and at the same time is being told, if you don't have a sexual partner, you're not fully human, then the message is either, look, get yourself a sexual partner so that you can be fully human like the rest of us, or it's, so sorry, you're the one who doesn't get a sexual partner, and so you don't get to be fully human. So the church just either goes into full endorsement of same-sex marriage and that sort of thing, or the church just ends up being total hypocrites if they say no to that. Um, Because sex, because we affirm both at the same time, sex is the thing that makes us fully human, and sex is only reserved for people like me, not people like you. Um, so 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 you can't be that thing that you're supposed to be fully human. So I think honestly, um is my feeling that the evangelical church is much better served at this point learning to embrace singleness than it is um saying kind of fighting against homosexuality. Um because until we, until we fix the theology that is at the that is underneath this question, um, we're not going to solve the question in any way that is helpful or biblical, um, and we're not going to say things that are that are biblical to anybody. Um, so until I'm willing to say I'm willing to be single, or I'm willing for my children to be single, then I don't think I can just kind of say, oh, well, you're same-sex attracted, so you're supposed to be single. Um, until the church can build up structures that makes singleness possible and, and even beautiful, then then, it's, then it's, so, it's so unloving to say you have to be single. Um, that's the opposite of what the church is supposed to be. The church is supposed to call us to holiness, and then the church is supposed to help us be holy. And that doesn't just mean be a cheering squad. Yay, you can do it. It means creating real structures that make holiness possible. Um, that that includes uh, worship and sacraments and fellowship, but it also includes things like retirement programs and housing and financial stability and, you know, stuff like that. Um, and I think we, we've over-spiritualized once again, kind of forgotten our roots in that earthy resurrection. When we say that that other stuff doesn't matter and people should just suck it up and do what's right, there's a sense in which, yeah, of course, we should all suck it up and do what's right. At the same time, the church has to do all that it can to support holiness. And until the church starts taking that call to holiness seriously, its own role in that holiness, then, um, then we, we just sound like hypocrites, is what I think.
0: Great. Christina, this has been a really insightful conversation. Thank you so much for your book, uh, The Significance of Singleness. Is the book we want to recommend to all of our listeners. We'll feature it uh, and put a photo up uh, when we post the podcast. Uh, but it's a terrific book, I hope you keep writing because you write really well in this. Thank you. And you've got you've got a lot to say on this, and thank you so much for f- the way you frame it theologically. Uh, is so helpful and so insightful. So we, Sean and I both very much appreciate you coming on with us, and uh, hopefully our, our listeners will get a get a, a copy of your book, The Significance of Singleness.
2: Thank you so much. I really appreciate it.
0: This has been an episode of the podcast Think Biblically, conversations on faith and culture. To learn more about us and today's guest, Dr. Christina Hitchcock, and to find more episodes, go to biola.edu forward slash thinkbiblically. That's biola.edu forward slash thinkbiblically. If you enjoyed today's conversation, give us a rating on your podcast app and share it with a friend. Thanks so much for listening. And remember, think biblically about everything.